Welcome to William Blair Thinking Presents, a new podcast series that aims to provide in-depth expertise from our award-winning equity research and capital advisory teams on today's financial and economic landscape. I'm Chris Thonis, Head of Equities Marketing and Media Relations, and I'm delighted to be your host. Hi, everybody. On today's episode of William Blair Thinking Presents, we welcome back macro analyst Richard DeChazal. He's here for our July monthly macro episode. Richard, thank you for joining me again. It's great to have you here. It's been another busy month. Figure we can kick this off with some of the more significant economic indicators and Fed actions that have occurred this month, at least thus far. In particular, I wanted to touch on one of your most recent economics weekly reports where you focus on the ongoing question, will rates be higher for longer? One thing in this particular report, you draw attention to what is seemingly this elusive R-star. So you define it as a Goldilocks interest rate, the rate at which the economy inflation are not too hot and not too cold. Do you mind just digging into that a little bit, this this R-star a bit? What is it? What has been driving it? And uh, maybe just where do you think it's heading? Sure. So yeah, thanks, Chris. And obviously, thanks very much for uh, having me back. I'll try and keep this relatively brief. So I think effectively, our star is the rate which all central bankers are trying to achieve in terms of the ultimate goal when setting their policy interest rate. So I think from that perspective, it's usually defined as the real short-term neutral interest rate for the economy. So that's the interest rate the economy should be at when it's in perfect equilibrium. So it's kind of the natural rate when the economy is at its full potential growth and low and stable rates of inflation. And I think for central bankers, they typically kind of see this as their guiding light. It's kind of the anchor rate interest rate for the economy. It's sort of the tractor beam in in a sense that it sort of pulls the Fed policy rate towards that. So if the Fed's policy rate is above this R-star rate, policy is deemed as being restrictive. So in which case you'll typically start to see inflation coming down, you'll see weakness in financial markets, and you know the economy kind of gets pulled back to this sort of more natural rate. And conversely, then when policy is below or the policy rate is below our star, policy is kind of viewed as being accommodative. So that's when you might start to see the economy overheating a bit, inflation picking up, financial markets become a little overstimulated. And then the Fed is typically forced to try and push up rates to kind of restore that stability. So I've kind of laid it as a bit the Goldilocks rate. It's the rate, you know, the economy should be at when things are just right. Now, that's all fine. But I think there are at least probably more, but at least two major problems with this natural rate. The first is that it's unobservable. So we don't actually know what this rate is is, and estimates of it vary amongst various economists and bodies like the IMF or the Fed, which means that for the Fed and for financial market participants like investors, they're spending a lot of time looking at the various bits of economic data, trying to figure out just how accommodative or restrictive policy is at the moment relative to that neutral rate. So it's a bit like aiming for a goalpost when you can't actually see those goalposts out there, but you know they're there somewhere. So I think that's one problem. So you you can't see it. The second problem, I think, is that 
it's not necessarily stable. It's it's not always the same. It potentially changes over time, not very quickly, because it's largely driven by structural factors, which can push it higher or lower. And then some even argue that there might even be two or more R-star rates, so a shorter-term equilibrium rate, and then a longer-term one. That, so that kind of complicates things a little bit. But I think what's interesting at the moment is the debate is now for the market and for economists and central bankers is whether this kind of R-star rate has changed since the pandemic. Are we now sort of in a higher for longer interest rate environment or are we moving back into a sort of lower for longer, which was what we were in kind of pre-pandemic? And I think in the old world, in the pre-pandemic world, this R-star rate was really low, perhaps even negative. Larry Summers was kind of famous for talking about this. He dubbed this as a return of secular stagnation. It meant that this rate was going to stay low for quite some time. And I think most investors and financial market participants and central bankers pretty much accepted this view. I think today, since the pandemic, we've experienced a number of potentially structural changes, which suggests that this may no longer be the case. So I think a couple of these factors, which you would typically look at as drivers of this natural rate, a couple are pointing to still kind of low-ish sort of rates, and maybe a couple would suggest that maybe it's a little bit higher. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So on the sort of lower side, we have demographics. And by that, I mean sort of two things which are really driving the narrative here. One is aging population. So when you have aging populations, they tend to save more. You have more savings over investments. That typically equates to lower interest rates. And you also have declining population growth rates pretty much across the developed and developing worlds bar Africa. So again, that would be something that would drag down potential growth rates for your economy. You have fewer people working, slower population growth means less consumption and slower pace of consumption as well. So that's kind of a drag on activity and a drag on rates. The other factor there could be energy. If we are moving to more of an energy scarce world where it's energy is no longer cheap and plentiful, that could act again as a significant drag on growth. That could help pull down inflation, could be sort of more of a disinflationary, deflationary world, again, pulling rates down on that side. On the flip side, I think, which is what people in the market are more concerned or growing concern about, is some of the factors that could be pushing it up. So those are things like fiscal policy. I think in the post-COVID world, governments seem to have rediscovered the power of the purse. So we're now spending more on things like wars, both hot and cold. We've got the war of on climate change. Healthcare spending has certainly accelerated after COVID, and, and we know that's going to rocket ahead in the coming years with the aging population. And that increases government spending. If that government spending is not supported by higher taxes or lower spending elsewhere, and if the interest rate paid 
on the debt starts to creep above your productive growth rate of the economy, that can push up that natural interest rate for the economy. And I think so the second potentially you know, more positive factor boosting our star is that we could be in the early days of a bigger productivity boost, say a structural productivity boost driven by this kind of innovation wave. We're seeing AI being the latest iteration of that. And that could help to push up real potential GDP growth and in turn the speed limit of the economy. So that's typically a good thing. Doesn't necessarily mean a higher rate of natural rate of interest is a bad thing. But I think in a nutshell, we're probably now in a world where not all of the forces that were pushing our star downwards pre-pandemic are really there anymore. So it's really just a question of kind of what degrees are those downward factors offsetting maybe some of the ones that are now leaning towards pushing it up. My guess would be that we might be a fractionally higher on that rate, but probably not enough to write home about. What the Fed is saying, they've certainly John Williams at the New York Fed, he's published some recent notes about this. He doesn't think it's changed. In fact, he thinks it's probably still heading lower. The IMF has also done a bit of work on this, and it too thinks this rate is going to remain low. But Obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty around this kind of unknown variable. It's a fun topic to discuss, but I think it's it's an interesting and, in, uh, and an important one. Yeah, you're right. We really could have spent the entire episode on that. That's great. So interest rates, since we're on the topic, it's a good segue to, I think, the housing market as one tends to influence the other. Powell seemed pretty optimistic in June. He was quoted, I think, to say, we now see housing put in a bottom and maybe even move up a little bit. So, you know, it seems that as rates continue to to increase, the opposite would happen. But then, you know, recent data on new home sales and housing starts has, as you said in your report, far surpassed expectations to the upside. And then somehow home builder confidence has shifted back into positive territory. What would you say is happening here exactly? Yeah, I think it's clearly a bit of a weird situation and not one that I've kind of experienced in, in my career. I mean, I think... If I was just, again, put it into a bit of a nutshell, I'd say the story really revolves around the fact that you have this dichotomy between existing homeowners and new homes for sale. So the existing homeowners don't want to sell their house because if they do, they're going to have to switch from their nice 2 to 3% mortgage rate to a 7% one. So they're not putting their homes on the market up for sale, which means that the inventory of existing homes on the market is, you know, or has completely dried up. So all of the inventory of homes for sale that's out there is really for new homes. And these are the ones that the home builders have on their books and they're keen to get rid of. So that's great for them. And I think at the same time, Again, we're in this situation where the economy is still hanging in there. So the consumer still seems to be in pretty good shape. Balance sheets are in good shape. We have a low unemployment rate and they're still keen to buy homes. And anyone who then wants to buy a home really only has a choice of the new ones that they can choose from. So for the home builders, that's great because they've got the supply 
there's no competition from existing homeowners. And I think as a result, that's why we're starting to see their home, you know, home surveys of home builder confidence have started to move up again. So at the moment, I think we're in this kind of equilibrium, a bit of a stable equilibrium, but my concern would be to what extent that might be a bit of a false equilibrium. So what could potentially upset this? And I think a couple of things. One is that supply chains have cleared. So the builders can now pretty much get all of the material they were short of during the pandemic. So that's the windows, the steel trusses, the lumber, that kind of thing. And I think that's important because they also have a lot of unfinished homes or homes under construction, which are in the pipeline. And I think as those are completed, they'll obviously start to add inventory to the overall supply. I think we're mostly talking about multifamily homes here, so flats and apartments, as opposed to single-family homes, where the inventory is much tighter. And I think that's where the home builders are now kind of shifting their attention quite wisely. But I think the second thing is that would potentially destabilize this is what if these existing homeowners start to put their homes on the market and then adding to that inventory and what might cause that to happen? Well, rates could come down. I think it's unlikely that they're going to come down that quickly in the next year or so. But a couple of other factors in the near term could be we start to see rising unemployment rate. That could happen if rates start to finally bite and companies decide they no longer want to hoard labor and start to shed workers, in which case we start to see delinquency rates moving up and then people are sadly forced to uh, sell their homes, you know, or they could be add to inventory for various other reasons, like, you know, they get a job in a different city or divorce rates increase or household formations increase. So I think the narrative here is one of a bit of an unstable equilibrium in the near term. I think it's something the home builders are definitely excited about because there's a lack of competition there. But there's a risk that existing homes do start to come to the market as well. I think ultimately we do start to see further cyclical weakness, but then just to confuse things, perhaps, I think there's also a structural narrative. So I think that's the cyclical narrative, but structurally, I think there's actually pretty good story there in the sense that we still have this kind of ongoing secular shortage of homes more generally. So if you look at vacancy rates, those are still extremely low on the supply side, particularly for affordable housing. And then on the demand side, you still have, or you increasingly have, millennials, which are now coming into their prime home buying year. So demand is increasing there. So net net, again, I think there's room for some cyclical weakness, but there's kind of this good structural floor or foundation there, if you will, that can provide some longer term support for the housing market. So going back to where you're talking about Powell and the Fed, I think it suggests that the Fed has to be a little bit careful here in terms of how it interprets the housing market data and how high it feels that it can push rates before potentially upsetting this stable or unstable equilibrium. So moving in another direction, 
let's talk about inflation for a moment. You were relatively pessimistic after last month's headline CPI. Things seemed a little more positive from this month's print. It came in, of course, lower than expected. Did did anything really surprise you coming out of the June data? I think clearly this last report was good news. I mean, I, I think we're clearly making more headway or more progress on inflation. Even the core rate came down to 4.8%. So that's great. That's encouraging. I think it is heading or going to continue to head in that direction. I would say a couple of minor caveats, perhaps. We were fa- or have been facing some pretty easy comps through May and June. So if you remember last year, commodity prices were skyrocketing through those months following the Ukraine invasion. So as we start to move into July, August, September, those comps start to become a little bit more difficult from a year-over-year year perspective. And quite clearly, we're still not yet at 2%. From the Fed's perspective, I think they're not comfortable that we're definitely on that trajectory just yet. I think we're close. And I think all the leading indicators, which I look at, are still pointing in the same direction, and that's down. So that's things like the NFIB small business pricing intention survey. If we look at raw commodity prices, I think in the last week, we've had a bit of a blip there from Russia again. But the economy's leading indicators are still pointing to growth weakness. And I think that's consistent with further weakness in terms of pricing. I think we still need to see some further progress on the important core services less housing front, which is mainly driven by wages. So wage growth has still been a little bit strong. So that's proving a little bit stickier. But I think the market was obviously pretty pleased with this report, so much so that it's again revived talk of, quote unquote, this immaculate disinflation where inflation coming down without the need for a recession. I'm a little bit less convinced that we can avoid a recession altogether, but definitely things are looking better. And and I think let's hope that continues. Immaculate disinflation. I don't think I've heard that before. I like that. So would like to turn our attention now toward the markets. One of your most recent weekly market monitors caught my attention. You were referencing the recent stock market rally following the better than expected CPI print. And then the small increase in initial jobless claims saying that the rally has also, quote unquote, increased FOMO. You described FOMO, this particular FOMO, as a strong feeling by investors that after having been bearish through the first half of the year, they feel like they can't afford to miss out on any potential future rally through the second half. As a result, the worry that supported the market through the first half of the year is rapidly dissipating. Do you mind explaining this a bit more? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think at the start of the year, sentiment was definitely pretty bearish. I think a lot of investors were sitting out of the market. They were on the sidelines. We were all expecting bad news when there was a reluctance to participate. So from that perspective, investors weren't fully invested and the market wasn't overbought. Bull markets are typically built on what we call a wall of worry, 
which means that once all investors' concerns are gone, it would suggest that everyone is then fully invested. So there's no new buyers to come into the market. So then the rally starts to lose momentum as there's no new money coming in. And I think that's when you should start to be a little bit more nervous about the market. And I don't think investors were necessarily wrong with that view per se. So even though the market was up 16% on the S&P 500 in the first half of this year, I'm not sure I'd call it a healthy or broad-based rally. So in reality, it was really just sort of this kind of handful of large cap tech stocks, which were pushing the market higher. And if you look at, say, the S&P 500 on an equally weighted basis, it was actually only up 6%. So it wasn't a broad base rally. And I think now what might be happening is investors are thinking, well, we missed the first half rally. Inflation's now coming down. Maybe this sort of immaculate disinflation narrative is taking hold again. We can't afford to miss out on any rally in the second half. So there's this sort of FOMO, I think, starting to build. And we're seeing this as well in surveys of investor confidence, bulls, bears surveys, that kind of thing. Thing, which are getting pretty bullish at the moment. And they could be right if we do start to see the rally broadening into other names and breadth improving across the market. But I think what you're definitely seeing is this wall of worry, which I guess was helpful for the first half of the year, that is starting to be lowered, where the risk is then that this is happening just at a time when kind of these long and variable lags from previous rate increases that we've seen over the last year, those kind of start to kick in. And there's a concern that maybe you would be jumping into the market at the wrong time on that sense. So I I think it's a little bit cautious on that one. We're starting to see some of the meme stocks performing well again. That's always a little bit of a concern. And certainly, while I would doubt something the Fed wants to see, given that you know, its financial conditions are one of the main channels through which Fed policy acts. So I would be a little bit cautious on that front. Okay. Got it. And then while we're still on the topic of markets, Q2 corporate earnings season is now in full swing. Anything specific you're, you're looking for from a macro perspective? Yeah. So Q2 is getting underway. I think definitely. So from my perspective, without crunching too deep into the bottom up type numbers, I think from a macro perspective, I would be looking at three or four-ish kind of things. First, what's happening with the banking system? Remember that Silicon Valley Bank only took place in early March, and then we had Credit Suisse. So most of the second quarter, we should have been feeling some of the aftershocks from that banking system turmoil. So we know that bank lending standards have increased substantially. We can look at the bank lending data and see that that has come down significantly, particularly for CNI or commercial industrial loans. We also want to look at what's been happening in commercial real estate. So are banks and companies starting to feel a little bit more pain there? Are we getting a sense of that as kind of a potential area of risk? 
So how has that been impacting the banks and what's happening with their net interest margins? We saw some deposit flight from the smaller banks. Are they starting to have to raise their deposit rates? Is that squeezing those net interest margins and is that getting offset by other areas? And then what about the companies that were borrowing if they're no longer getting access to credit? How is that starting to show up? So I think so far we've seen some of the financials or the bigger bank financials have actually looked pretty good. But even CEOs like Jamie Dimon you know, have sort of struck a more cautious tone about the future. Second thing is clearly on the inflation side. So if inflation really is now cooling, what's happening with this so-called greedflation? So companies have been raising prices over the last few years to maintain margins. But today we are seeing some slowdown in the volume or unit volume of activity. And if that's falling as prices are coming down, do we start to see margins getting a little bit more squeezed there? And perhaps lastly, do we start to see margins coming in on the back of companies hoarding labor? So I think one of the more unusual dynamics that we're seeing during this economic cycle playing out is that companies have been slow or less inclined to immediately lay off workers because they've been so hard to recruit and then train and then costly to compensate and retain. At what point does that start to put greater pressure on the cost side, on corporate profit margins? And at what point do investors start to sort of push back and say, okay, margins might get squeezed enough? My feeling is we don't see a ton of that just yet. But maybe that's more of Q3, Q4 story, but that's certainly something we'll be looking at in the coming months. And I think net, what we have seen over this quarter has been that earnings growth has been slowing, but prices have been moving up. So what we have seen, which again, I don't think I would have expected at the start of the quarter, has been multiple expansion. So if you look at the PE on a forward basis at the start of the quarter, it was 17.8 times. And then at the end or today, it's almost 20 times. And on a 12-month trailing basis, that's gone from 18.5 to basically 21. So interesting there. And basically, I think those are some of the factors I think I'll be paying most attention to. Great. Uh, Richard, as always, thank you so much for joining. It's been a pleasure catching up with you. Let's connect again next month. And good luck the next few weeks. We'll talk soon. Great. Thanks, Chris. It's been a pleasure. For more, head to williamblair.com slash thinking, uh, where you can browse our library of white papers, market updates, webinars, and all these other resources designed to provide actionable intelligence for emerging opportunities. If you like what you heard, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Copyright 2023, William Blair and Company, LLC. William Blair and Ardox are registered trademarks of William Blair and Company, LLC. As used on this podcast, William Blair refers to William Blair and Company, LLC, William Blair Investment Management, LLC, and affiliates. For more information about William Blair, go to www.williamblair.com. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and not intended as investment advice or recommendation to buy or sell any security. 
Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of an investor's objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers and are subject to change over time as market and other factors evolve.